0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Welcome back. Uh, I know we had a kind of pre-seminar last week before week one, uh, but this is uh, week one, and so we're we're going properly with the GI seminar series. And it is is a great pleasure to have TV Paul back here again, back in Brisbane, and back with with Griffith. Um, You've become a bit of a friend to to us, and so it's great to have you here again. TV's been doing various different things this this week, but what he's going to talk about today is India's quest for global power status, constraints and opportunities. Um, Some of you may know uh, TV's uh, bio, I won't go through all of that, but he's James McGill, Professor of International Relations at the Department of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal, um, where I imagine it's a little colder than it is here
1: at the moment.
0: (laughs) So uh, he's coming. <laughs> he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada as well. He's been president of, of the International Studies Association uh, quite recently. He's the author of a lot of books and articles. My particular favorite is, um, is your book on Pakistan, Warrior State, which I, I find a really interesting one. Kind of one of those books that uh, kind of nags away at you in the back of your head and you keep coming back to it. <laughs> and a rereading, and so on. Uh, and I know you also published a book some time ago now, 2002, on uh, India in the World Order, Searching for Major Power Status. Uh, so you're kind of coming back to these themes almost 20 years on. And uh, so I'm going to hand over to you to you now, TV. Uh, you've got yes. as much time as you like, really. Um, and uh, right. looking forward to hearing what to thank say. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Ian. And uh, um, thank you, Kai He, Nguyen, and, um, and Natasha, and... If I'm forgetting any other names, uh, pardon me, but clearly uh, you rightly said, I feel very much at home coming back to Griffith in different formats. Uh, A few years ago, I had a conference, not here, but uh, downtown. It was quite an interesting opportunity. But uh, we have so much in common in terms of our research interests, and uh, I must say that uh, I've been looking forward to Ian's latest book, Modi and the Reinvention of Indian Foreign Policy, and I hope... uh, some of the ideas I'm presenting may be uh, uh, consistent or, or relevant to that discussion. So, uh, like Ian said, um, I did a book uh, with Baldev Nayar, a senior colleague of mine, uh, more than uh, 15 years ago. And then uh, um, that book was written when a time when there wasn't any great theorization on rising powers or status. But since then, I have uh, done a co ed volume with uh, Deborah Larson and uh, Bill Wolfer called Status in World Politics. And so I have been thinking about revisiting India, India's quest. And a lot of uh, youngst- young scholars are working on status. Uh, in fact, I review quite a it uh, over time, some of my PhD students too. So I thought maybe I should put my thoughts on India, India's quest, in a new monograph and uh, a bit critical like Pakistan but I don't know how far I will go given the current situation but I will see my my best effort to critical but sensitive to India because we cannot just uh, wish it away this is uh, one-seventh of humanity with a uh, 3,000 to 5,000 year old civilization it has its reason to be respected and valued in international order but it also needs to be aware of that international system is very cruel to rising powers, as we know. It's not so easy to get into that club. And uh, so that's what I want to talk about. So the starting point is, um, although many in India would say, uh, we don't really care about international status, that's not the case with the elite. I think if you read Nehru's period onwards, you get this idea that there is this underlying desire to be recognized as a major player, major power. They don't like the word great power because it is associated with the European imperial powers. But obviously this has been a quest. And uh, you can see that in different manifestations. Some leadership obviously played it more intensely than others. Today it has become actually what I call status politics. Status politics means it's not only for international contestation, it's for domestic contest too. So if you look at Modi in particular, his uh, use of status as a mechanism to achieve <laughs> his electoral goals, his indutra goals, all are conflated in a particular psychological, socio-psychological milieu. And so I did a little tour last month in the, in India. and. Uh, um, I was reluctant to write this book because the story is still ongoing, and how much can I do? But I got enormous amount of encouragement from the younger scholars in various parts of India, saying, you must do this book as soon as possible, we are looking for... Uh, that was a good feeling, because usually when a foreign scholar, like, although I'm not that foreign, but uh, uh, looked down upon us, uh, what are you going to say? But I think uh, there is a, a possibility for something here. So the literature is uh, advancing big way uh, because of the uh, rising power phenomenon. Unless you theorize the rising power phenomenon with something like a status theory or something, what exactly is the rising power phenomenon other than the IR typical IR scholarship? So there is a lot of interest here, and so starting point is what is status? What is great power status? Again, contested terms. So I'm going to use what we used uh, in our uh, co-edited volume, collective beliefs about a given state's ranking on valued attributes such as wealth, coercy capabilities, demographic position, socio-political organization, and diplomatic clout. Sounds like a mishmash soup kind of thing, but clearly it is uh, uh, what others think of you. That's another big problem with the status. Status is like beauty. Uh, this is famous song by Christina Aguilera, she says, "I Am Beautiful No Matter What." What do you What do you say? It really is a very good one because it makes you feel good. I mean, you know, everybody needs to feel good. But it all depends what others think of you and uh, people sometimes forget. And the Indian case is very interesting that way because Indians have a very different perception of themselves than Indians means general Indian public, than what the world might be thinking of them, but they don't really give a damn. They, I know they, they think that they have, some of them think they have arrived already, which is a very interesting phenomenon. So, this uh, phenomenon of uh, status is uh, ongoing in human history. In fact, uh, there's so much to read about in political theory, modern times Machiavelli, Hobbes, you know, all kinds of discussions but beyond those uh, classical realist positions there is considerable interest uh, American constitution makers you know, there's a lot of discussion about glory how to restrain men, you know, that kind of stuff and so what is great power status that's again a very contested term. Again I'm going to use for the time being the comprehensive elements of national power So those states have, with the highest uh, amount of capabilities and influence and legal status in international order, uh, attributed by other great powers, okay, the peer group has to accept you as a great power. Now, the great power term is a very European term, European, classical European term, very contested because um, the Europeans had a very peculiar understanding of who is in the club, a uh, rather racist world, so for a long period they thought Ottoman Turk Turkey had no role there, but they were a great power, magnificent power in the European context. Japan was there for a short period, then pulled out of it, you know, a sort of a very peculiar club. Uh, but in any case, things have changed since today's world. You have four material hard power capabilities, military, economic, technological, demographic, and six soft power normative position, leadership role in international institutions, culture and civilization, state capacity, strategy and diplomacy, leadership role in uh, uh, international, uh, uh, international leadership role. So all these sound uh, too many, but clearly, if you look at even the existing major powers, great powers, the terms are used interchangeably, you find that the, they are leaders, except maybe France and Britain, Uh, on all these elements in some form. So it's not not clear how, where India will fit in, but when we talk about India as a rising power, we are actually talking about these ten elements potentially will make India the next candidate uh, power. And that's where the interesting discussion comes in. But I must definitely warn you that this idea of great powers status itself is going through a lot of changes, partly because the European great power system had it all very well laid out. You know, They controlled the world. I mean, from the concert system onwards, you find the league system. They fought wars, and whoever wins wars, and they give that role to them through the institutional recognition. So institutional recognition by peer group, essential for... Institutionalizing your uh, great power, great power <coughs> status, or major power status. I'm not very happy with great power status, but I'm going to. I don't have a escape from there because it's, it's sociologically used. Um, so, what are the mechanisms for status push by states? Some of them do it more violently than others. And so, here Larson and Chevanshin she, co have used social uh, identity theory. Three mechanisms, social mobility, uh, emulating the values and behaviors of members of an elite group, to be admitted to that group. And so that is because the elite group boundaries are reasonably open to mobility or acceptance. Social competition, existing status hierarchies are illegitimate and suitable. Mobility is lacking, so effort is to outrank the rival and get there somehow through use of force or threat of use of force. Or social creativity is evaluating a negative as positive or identifying a new criteria for evaluation on which the group ranks highly, developmental model, culture, diplomatic initiatives, etc. So what is interesting is in the contemporary world order, um, you find that the, uh, the last one may be a lot more valuable than social creativity, and, and uh, some of the things that China does, you know, such as the BRI, and uh, you can see that the, it is quite creative in terms of achieving its goal of the global status. But China and India, by the way, there is a lot of confusion about China is already a recognized great power. It has P5 status. What it is seeking is global power status. India is not seeking global powers, even though Indians may pretend that, that's not the case. It is not a great power yet, recognized by the peer groups, although it would like to be called itself. So, the unanswered questions are, why do people go after this uh, intangible thing called status? And um, that is generating a lot of attention today among uh, some of the American scholars in particular, And, of course, there are general reasons for psychological reasons, intrinsic psychological value. People love to be recognized. Even even though some people say, I don't care about recognition, but I do, at home at least, I would like my kids to recognize me. You know, I don't want to be treated as, what kind of a father are you? You I want to be recognized as someone who is NDAs to them. So Everybody has that recognition craving even if it's not coming out in any big way. But it is much worse for nation-states, think about it, collectivity. And the elite that controls, because the elite has much more other reasons to be recognized. So the the way Modi comes around, you know, all that is because it gives him not just uh, his country is respected, you know, that kind of stuff, and social craving is very much part of this human desire. But collectivity's behavior tends to change a little bit. And that is something that we don't have a full account for. And some countries don't really come out openly and say we need this uh, kind, because they realize their rest, uh, constraints they have. And so, is it along with security and uh, resources or power another variable, or are they connected? And that's all, Those are all interesting questions in the larger literature. Uh, beyond the psychological value, you have material benefits. There is no there is no question that if you are in the top club of great powers, you get a lot of goodies, and including your passport is valuable. You know, you go around, you get material benefits, and, and there is no way to deny that the American status is helping the American citizens uh, gaining material and other benefits. That's why, you know, you will hardly find any in America, by the way, who wants America to decline? I've engaged a lot of constructivist, critical theorists, all that, in my IR life, but I've never heard any American saying we should decline, because it's good for us. Maybe, maybe different reasons are there. One reason is, of course, they all think America is for the good of the world. So even if it's not, but but this, this assumption is very well ingrained in the American psyche, and. Uh, I don't think any Chinese would say the same thing that China should decline. There is always a desire China should be the power or valued state in the world. So that is there, and um, it increases security because if you can offer certain goodies in return, you get benefits. That's where the 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 benefits of status are there. And um, beyond the material, there are other things, and the question is. Why did India in 1947, under Nehru's era, sought status based on very little material power? India was a very poor country, by the way, when it emerged out of uh, colonial yoke, and as uh, many of you know, it was uh, uh, not even 1% of the world's trading, you know, it was 26% when the British arrived, that's what they say, I don't know. Obviously. <laughs> It lost a lot, you know, the 200 years of colonial world. I don't want to blame the British for everything, but obviously something was happening in that whole Asia-Pacific context. Um, now the point is, why, did, why do a state with such low material power uh, push for this under Nehru? And those who have studied Nehru, I'm sure Ian has done this, um, he had a very different vision of, in, of the world and India's role in it. And he gave an interview to, to publish, uh, some editor before independence saying that, well, we influence the world for one quarter of the world from, uh, he has a very nice quote, and uh, for 3,000 years we ought to be as recognized as a major power." and the Indian Ocean. He put a lot of, by the way, it's very fascinating to read his discussion on Indian Ocean. Now Indian Ocean is back, back to square importance. And Nehru foresaw that and he thought India will play a big role in the Indian Ocean power game, although he was not building the military for that. But I have an argument that is all the Western understanding of these things, intrinsic psychological value, material benefit, don't necessarily explain Nehru's push. I think he was more like one of these newly, de-colonized, uh, freedom, free, uh, newly independent state and he thought it was a moral right to support other underprivileged countries and take up their cause against Western imperialism. This was not for some typical psychological benefit for Nehru personally. I think he was genuinely moved by the fact that India has a role to play here to decolonize, and by the way, this is one area where people should accept that the decolonization process has a lot to do with that pressure by these newly emerging states, from Bantung to non-alignment, and the UN (coughs) decolonization move. So the normative power was something that we need, when he's coming out of Gandhi's influence, and it is fascinating to read some of discovery of India, worth going back, by the way, it was handwritten, recently I was in uh, in the Nehru Museum, a visiting after some 40 years, I was a kid when I went there, that shows I am still young. <laughs> and I was there, and there is this thing, uh, it's handwritten, which m- was mind-boggling for me, this is one of the most impressive books on India you will ever read, a very critical book, by the way, read it if you can. and. Uh, this gentleman was in a prison, in Allahabad uh, or Ahmadabad one the prison, Ahmadabad I guess. Anyway. And three years he was there, didn't have even a secretary to type anything. He had limited books. And you can see his corrections on the manuscript. Now the Nehru Museum shows uh, on its uh, webpage too, I think. And it really put me in an emotional state. How could he write this? He is not a typical social scientist. He was a scientist trained in Cambridge. But he had enormous understanding of India and its civilization, which was really amazing and that was a moment for me visiting Delhi recently. So I encourage anyone go to his museum, before it is demolished by the way, and see his bedroom and all that, I mean, it's the last breath he took and it's in his will and testament, quite amazing. All was very moving, because I was brought up in the Nehruvian era, and, but I think it may, it may be over within the next uh, decade if things the way it is going. They're building a big building behind his museum on, uh, for all the prime ministers. And not all the prime ministers deserve that. <laughs> That's another, another issue. So, now, this civilizational basis that Nehru articulated, his statement that India left an in indelible impact on one quarter of humanity, reclaim universal history, all that is quite fascinating when you look at. That he is not looking at uh, today's or tomorrow's material condition, but something bigger than that. And that persists in the Indian psyche, even the leadership, for a long period of time. Now I want to make a claim that it has... Uh, uh, I'll come back to this point later. Well, where are we in India's position? And uh, and one thing people often forget is that the last 20, 25 years have been uh, enormously beneficial for India, not necessarily all Indians. Why? Beneficial for China, too. This is very rare in human history, that the globalization, economic forces all converged in favor of rising powers. If you look back at history, it was this unhappiness about the economic order, the Germans or the Japanese, that they are going to be losers, they need to fight battles. This is enormously important, and our understanding of globalization and its impact on this rising power phenomenon, globalization or economic forces, is still very rudimentary. And I would claim that without this post-91 openness, the world would be a very different place, because uh, we might have seen a lot more unhappy rising powers, but that is not the case. So the applause goes to the United States to some extent, but there's more than that, of course, MNCs and others this intensified era. And the agency, both the rising powers used it, China in particular, we know that. So India has come a long way, and it got all these things reasonably uh, adjusted. People started looking at it as a serious uh, power, and um, uh, that potentially it is going to be coming closer to China, very questionable assumption anyway. Maybe in the economic raw numbers, and I think that is um, uh, remarkable, and that is why we are we are even talking about it. Okay, if you didn't have any of these things, then there's no point in talking about it. it. You know, why do I don't talk about Pakistan right now because it doesn't have some of that stuff? So, anyway, it, it's not like putting down others, but clearly this is a, a challenge that we need to look. At. But then, why isn't it getting there faster than what it what 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 would want to? Even if you say. You know, he got all this stuff, but it's not getting there. Institutional recognition has happened. Yes, some recognition. Some are self-created and created with the uh, other rising power, China and others, like BRICS and others. But somehow it's not easy for a new power of this uh, nature to get in there. And I think we, ha- we need to recognize the fact that uh, um, this relative acceptance by other powers Partly because China outgrew in every dimension much faster than India. And uh, I guess, I, I don't want to go to soft power element because that's very sensitive for some people. But clearly, it is clear that the first hard power uh, China has done much better and hopefully the coronavirus won't pull it down much worse, but that's another issue. Now where is India, what is India's problem? I think this is where we have to keep our eyes open and say there is an underlying weakness of the state. I call it, I have done some work on state capacity in South Asia. What is state capacity? The ability of a state to develop and implement policies in order to provide collective goods, such as security, order, and welfare to its citizens in a legitimate and effective manner untrammeled by internal or external actors. Now this is my own definition from previous work. And that is one fundamental problem for India. When you say state capacity, I'm not talking about the government in New Delhi. It's the state government, it's the panchayat village, it's the municipalities, it's the public goods provider as a state is extremely, I, I wouldn't call it extremely, but it's a weak state in that area. The second big challenge is inclusive economic development. And that is uh, fundamentally, it's probably one of the most unequal societies and likely to stay there because there's also the caste structure which makes hierarchical distribution quite uneven. And finally, I would also increasingly, the big problem of internal divisions, uh, propelled by those same people who want. India to gain more status. So there is a big contradiction in their behavior towards uh, minorities in particular and the way they are uh, seeking global status. So uh, but they, they seem to be happy with Trump visiting and doing stuff. but the point is how sustainable that kind of uh, that kind of thing. And so we can argue that the hard power there is considerable achievement, nuclear testing was a pivotal moment. And the acceptance of a nuclear India as a quasi-nuclear state, comparison with all the other uh, post-NPT nuclear states, is an achievement, it's a status achievement. So the U.S.-India deal is not, I wouldn't consider it as materially that great, I think now they are trying to sell some, but it, ha- it was an enormous moment of status recognition even if you are against the nuclear weapons and all that, but the fact that the deal... And I asked, I I had the privilege of meeting Manmohan Singh, this visit. Spent some time with him, and it was fascinating to him, and I asked him the question, do you think this was a moment of status recognition? He said, yes, that's the number one. He was sort of insisting my own point that this was status recognition. We got out of the apartheid. This is what he was keep telling. This man, he became quite animated discussing the subject. It's not Other topics he was kind of quiet. It was fascinating to look at his greatest achievement. So I think we need to look at that. um, uh, The hard power is problematic because you have economic power. Yes, you have a big market. But you also have this very skewed technological development. You have this space going on very well, nuclear a little bit here and there. But the applied technologies are all problematic. to be honest with you. Unless the Chinese import, export their technologies or ma- their goods, it, it's problematic that the Indians can produce the same kind of things they could. I mean, IT, of course, another area, but even that is very tied to the global economic arena. And I think there is kind of conspicuous consumption mentality that you buy all these expensive weapons, which the most fascinating one was this uh, Raphael, where... The minister goes there and put an ohm on top of it, which challenged my notion. This is a Catholic secular country produces weapon and they're putting something which is... uh, For electoral purposes, you know, standing in front of... It was really amazing how you use this for weapons. And what is amazing is the weapon purchasing hardly receiving any critical analysis, which is... So average Indian or the Indian journalists have accepted that we need these weapons not only for defense, but for status. This is the problem of showing off. I mean, Republic of parades are the biggest places where they show. In <laughs> India alone is not in this game, by the way. Every country, uh, Trump tried to resurrect in the United States, it didn't work, but the French do this, the Chinese, I believe. Do. The Russians were very good at it, you know, showing their missiles. and People very much uh, get uh, uh, animated for a period of time. So this problem of um, technology without um, own technology is not sufficient. Great powers make their own technologies. They are self-sufficient often. They have their own contributions in technology. area. Each of these areas, every power that became global power made their own contributions. Um, and that is why we need to be I mean, when Indians or Indian elite talk about uh, you know, where, where we are, it's, it's very important to look at that. So I want to talk a little bit about constraints in this uh, international game of status recognition. And I think the problem for India, as for any future great power or rising power, is the latecomer problem. The latecomer problem. What do, you mean, what do I mean by latecomer problem? International order and great power status are determined at the end of the last war, major war, at least for the last 3 200 years. And India missed the boat in 1945 San Francisco settlement. There was uh, very little support from the British, by the way. There was support from others to include India as a P-5 state or P-6 state. And uh, I don't know in the literature whether the Indian elite cared about it, pushed it enough. Probably it was not in their radar screen as much. And so international orders are stuck. Very hard to change that until there is a next war or some other big crisis or something happens. Unless, of course, the 21st century and we'll, we'll forget about this great power status business. Other big moment was 1968 when the NPT was set up. So the NPT recognized those countries that had tested before 68, legal right to be nuclear weapon states. India was unfortunately not there. So these are two major, at least in my mind, um, this, uh, this difficulty for India and, and any other rising power to enter the club is that it is stuck. Now to change that, and NPT by the way is extended in perpetuity very hard to change these international rules and regulations uh, because uh, incumbents don't want to change it and in the UN Security Council issue, the small states don't want to change it. They had enough of hierarchy, they don't want to legitimize more power to a state that uh, is claiming this. So they have to invent new uh, institutional mechanisms such as uh, G20 or uh, BRICS but as you already know, BRICS is... Uh, uh, I don't know what is happening to the brick part of the bricks. But anyway, it is fascinating to see that uh, this dimension of systemic rigidity that we need to look into, how do you get peaceful change? That's one of our joint big projects going on now without uh, another war or another big crisis. But countries do get accepted, accommodated. One of the mechanisms is you become an important player for the balance of power game among great powers, among big powers. And actually what is happening to India's position in the world today is partly because of that. People forget that. I mean, even if you are not a realist, balance of power is why the reason or presumed value in this rising bipolar world where India will play a bridge or some kind of a role to tilt the balance like China played before, uh, during the 70s and 80s. So this is one of the... One of this role that India gets is that, because you look around, there are not too many others with even closer military capabilities and other hard power capabilities to balance China, if China becomes a very powerful uh, state. So that's why the emerging balance of power gives it some role, I mean, whether we like it or not. Some people call it a bridge builder, bridge bridge power. Others call it hedging power. You know, different terms have come out. In recent years. Now, there is a general discussion that a power cannot become a great power without its regional states, regional neighbors accepting it as a powerful state. Now, here we have a big constraint, which is Pakistan. Challenger in many ways, but a status challenger too. It hasn't succeeded, but it, has, it had succeeded in the Cold War. There was uh, parity in the Western treatment of the two and my fear is it may be coming back if India is not, or the current elite is not careful they may lose that uh, status elevation after uh, 1990s or whatever so this challenge is uh, you mentioned the warrior state, I have a bit of a discussion about what Jinnah thought of uh, partition it was not purely, it's a civilizational challenge they thought the Muslims control subcontinent they should be co-equals or superior, Okay, by the way And that they should have enough territory, including entire Bengal, entire Punjab, all should go to them because they are considered as co-equal in the South Asian context. And that was a big disappointment for them. And then the status uh, part, they were able to equalize power with the Cold War alignment and nuclear weapons. You know, Nawab Sharif's statement is what? When he tested, today we have equalized power relationship with India. That is a status statement. It is not like we have deterrence now. He doesn't talk about deterrence, by the way. It's about status. And the Pakistani elite has not given up this idea of co-equal status, whether materially eight times bigger, but that is not the issue. Then you have a bunch of weak neighbors, unwilling to accept Indian hegemony, even when it had hegemonic power. They would challenge. Of course, India tried. But today it's... Very very difficult for India because of the entry of China. China gives all of the money and the infrastructure and economic development. So the weaker states have more agency than they used to. They are able to bargain much harder than they used to. Actually, it is good for the region. I mean, for the small states, this kind of uh, softer rivalry between India and China, because if it becomes a hard balancing rivalry. They have to take positions, which right now they can go back and forth, which is really good for them. And they're getting a lot of money. Bangladesh is growing faster than any other country in the world today. Now, the world image, actually, it's a good good time to talk about this world image problem, is what? It's hard to change image of of poverty and poor infrastructure. Even if you can say we have this great civilization, but you visit Delhi, as I do often, all of us, during Srila Dekshir's time, it was improving quite nicely, and then they didn't
0: re-elect her, you know,
1: it was funny. Congress lost all its positions through because of some corruption. And even if the current regime there is giving free uh, bus tickets to women and all the good things, but the problem is the city is not livable. It's not, you can't breathe, you can't walk around for 20 minutes. Come on, you know, the modern state should focus on that, quality of life. And that's what I love about your city. We have a hotel in South Brisbane, and walking is like, what a fresh air. I mean, you know, it's like better than Montreal, by the way. Montreal in the summer is nice. I don't want to pull down Canada, but we have a weather problem. You don't have that problem. But you have made an effort to make it a livable city, even though it's hot and humid and everything. That is what is missing in every single Indian city. Okay, I tell you this because I go to all these places, including Kerala, where I come from. They don't think about the pedestrian. They don't think about the crossing road. They don't think about, you know, how can the urban planners not think about that? What kind of urban planning is this which doesn't make a single park, single uh, facility for the ordinary people, you know? And I think that is a big challenge, and I don't hear a single debate on this subject in the Indian media, in the world media, that India's urban planning is primitive as you can think of. And for, This may sound... I'm sure there will be defensiveness coming from people who hear me, even on the... And they will say, okay, we are better than some others. No, in fact, Colombo is a much better city to walk around. I've been to Colombo and some other uh, cities. And even within India, by the way, we go to Sikkim. How many of you have been to Sikkim? Fascinating. It's like going to South Korea, by the way. Beautiful and clean. And, and it, is, it is... Of course, the Himalayas is very beautiful environment, all that. And very friendly people, too. Something about the culture, it just makes you... This is India, too. you know. It is amazing. Northeast India, many parts of India are much more interesting than we think. Um, or we think of the perception is. So, now, this is a problem that uh, we compare with other great powers. And I, I think I need to do this, which is, how did these other powers that wanted to become great, great, Peter the Great, the guy was learning from the Western countries trying to implement in Russia. The Meiji Restoration, its internal development is important for external purposes. Of course, they were thinking of war and all that at the time as mechanisms. China today, internal development is as important as external. You won't get respect until you have internal development, proper infrastructure, proper you know, things you do, technology, etc., this hasn't penetrated into the Indian psyche yet. If, I, if somebody can contest me on that, please do. But it may have been important for the top political elite, but if you go down to this other village, where the difference with China, as far as I know, is this. The Chinese Communist Party has told its people at different levels, you've got to improve perform. You've got to provide water. You've got to provide sanitation. If you don't do any of that, you'll be punished. Or, but you can be corrupt, you know, they are also corrupt, I believe. Somebody told me the Indian bureaucracy and Indian uh, PWD and all, they are corrupt, but they don't deliver. <laughs> Whereas in the Chinese case, they are corrupt, but they deliver. Now, this is all very general discussion. Something about <laughs> corruption in the modern world, which is worth studying, there's a book on corruption in Indonesia, and, you know, the Indonesian miracles still happen in the old tongue. So this corruption idea is fascinating. You can be corrupt, get the money, but you do something about you know. Build the damn road, you know, don't stay over the files. To... I know personally that the Indian bureaucrat thinks that he or she has to hold on to the file more than what is needed, which is something about any.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so governance challenges are there. But despite all that, it is a messy democracy, but it's a lovable democracy, isn't it? Think about the world, which other country has this kind of a democracy uh, up until now, of course. Uh, that allows you to yell, talk, you, you know, spit whatever you want. But still, the freedom was something that you breathe. That when you walk around in the, on the campuses, and, you know, I uh, enjoyed that interaction. Even talking to the, the diplomats, they will speak up their mind, which is not the case in many countries, including most Southeast Asian countries, by the way. And so these are things that are fascinating about this culture. And uh, so then there is a discussion of strategic I won't go into all that. It's a very problematic one. Um, so I think uh, status is not coming easily. It did come because of systemic other reasons and economic reasons. There is a transmission bell problem. I talked about it. And I think the elite challenge is a bigger one than we recognize. It is both the bureaucratic and the political class. Beyond the national, national state that's the top leadership, you don't get a sense that our job is important for making India great. My job is very important. My job means me as a, a clerk in a government office. A little thing I do is matters. That is not penetrating because nobody's telling them that. you know You are an important part of nation building. So there is a weak state syndrome, but I think it is not uh, that simple. So many Indians would immediately react, oh, we are a democracy, therefore we are slow. Authoritarian states are better. Which authoritarian state are you talking about? We had so many in the neighborhood, (laughs) none of them performed all that great. Uh, There is one China and there is uh, Kwasai, Singapore, I guess. Yeah, but China is very unique. There's no example of that nature. And China also did well under a moral art system in my understanding. And Deng Xiaoping needs more credit, deserves more credit than anybody else in Chinese history, let me put it that way. For my personal, bit, little reading of it. So this idea that India turning an authoritarian state will <laughs> turn around the whole thing, total crap. <laughs> because the same bureaucracy will be controlling and it will be much easier for religious fanatics to control the state because there is no media, nobody to criticize. I was a college student in 1975. Madam Gandhi introduced uh, the emergency. I remember in my own eyes, the freer and, you know, people were taken from our campuses because they were Marxist sympathizers or whatever. And they're put in jail just like that. And uh, I was not uh, a Marxist, but it was a very difficult moment, even without a lot of knowledge of things, that this freedom is being taken away. I mean, the trains were running on time. But the same bureaucracy will be gaining a lot more power and authority. India cannot be run like an authoritarian state properly, because it's so heterogeneous. It's, you know, people are not going to easily, those who want authoritarian will be the first to oppose that, at least my reading. So, it offers democracy offers a way to unite this country, has been the unifier, great unifier, because even the villager has some voice in the system through MLA's, MP's, etc. Another topic that I want to pick up is why India did not accept this developmental state approach. You know those who study developmental state approach of the East Asian states, that you put a lot of emphasis on education, human development, and it is another topic that is sensitive in the Indian context. Only 2% of the GDP went into education from the beginning. Out of that, 1% for the higher education, the IITs, IIMs, and central universities. 1% of the GDP goes to the general education. Is absolutely not enough. I was told it is coming down now under this current regime. And... Every country in East Asia that did well, Myron Wiener's famous book, The Child in State in India, must read it. Seven to eight percent GDP had to be spent if you need, if you bring up the educational level. Kerala spends 36 percent. And those states in India that has done better is because they spend on education. And this is not penetrating into the elite or the bureaucracy that in the long run, in the short run, in the medium run, without an educated class of people and and lifting up that. What is the problem here? The problem, I think, is you have a number of sectors, inclusive growth, educational sector, infrastructure, health, hygiene, supply of water, children, civil society, and of course the hard power, military, make India, all that is problematic, demographic dividend may not happen which shows that status is not linear. Many Indians think, or out, outsiders think, that somehow you're going to get there, just stay put. It's not guaranteed that one remains an important player in the global economic order or political system. Argentina was richer than Australia. Now that's news to you, no? Some of you. I'm sure the senior people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's not the case today. It's a sad situation, Argentina's. That's the case with many other countries that were rich one day, became poorer. So, you can go down in the hierarchy, by the way. And if we are not careful, this is a big challenge. You still have a possibility for acceptance as a quasi-great power. Of course, because of this balance of power issue. And second of all, despite all the poor and all, there is still raw indicators matter. And the growth will, even with 4%, it will still be an important economy. And uh, I'm not desiring China's decline in any fashion, but if it happens with this current crisis, uh, India still could. I mean, who knows where India could be affected by this virus much worse than... So it's a slow march. And I think because of global governance, desire for representation, and that it has certain veto powers, a veto-holding state on global climate negotiation, on trade negotiation, but that is not equivalent to a proactive state. So it's not it's reactive, and that is a a big challenge that you can veto certain things, but you need to come up with something new. So slow march can happen. Um, Now, my last point is will this current extraordinary level of internal division propelled by human action and particular groups, how will that play in the future? I can only guess, and my My temporary or or tentative uh, argument is that it will substantially push Indians uh, thinking on India themselves, uh, these divisions, and it will affect external perception, the status perception, much more negatively than Indians and the current regime thinks. And that discrepancy, I don't think they understand properly, somehow they think, we don't care. Actually, I must say that a Twitter guy who responded to one of the articles, we usually tweet about, uh, is a status is overrated. Professor Paul, status is overrated. There's an RSS guy who responded to something. That's uh, one way to escape this problem. Anyway, let me stop there. And I say I say, this is all a tentative because I'm still in the thinking and uh, analytical stage, and your input will be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, thanks, TV. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.